The new mayor of New York on the job for just about three weeks today, promising to do everything in our power as a city to end this crisis. That's a quote. Mr. Adams, a former cop, unveiling a new plan he calls Blueprint for Safety. It includes something many officers say the city needs, including a reborn kind of anti-crime unit called Neighborhood Safety Teams. Officers in uniform, not undercover, into areas with the most gun violence. Spelling it all out for us, Stefan Kim, he's live at City Hall for us. Stefan. Well, Bill, that and the controversial anti-crime street unit is coming back, but the mayor says this version will be plain clothes will work differently this time around. The question is, will his critics agree with this version of it? New Yorkers feel as if a sea of violence is engulfing our city. But as your mayor, I promise you, I will not let this happen. We will not surrender our city to the violent few. Mayor Adams says now is the time for a more aggressive approach, rolling on his blueprint for safety today at City Hall. As part of the plan, the controversial anti-crime street unit, where officers dressed as civilians to get guns off the street, is being reinstated. Safety and justice are prerequisites for prosperity. The unit was dismantled in 2020 after years of criticism from civil rights advocates who argued too many innocent people of color were targeted. The mayor says his anti-crime unit will wear body cameras. There'll be consequences for officers to turn those cameras off and they'll be more identifiable so subjects they engage don't think they're being jumped. The mayor also wants to add more officers on patrol on the streets and in subways and add more detection efforts at city entry points for the iron pipeline like spot checks at entry points like Port Authority and other bus and train stations. There'd also be additional homeless and mental health outreach and more employment opportunities for young people with a focus on those in foster care. He wants to activate every agency, saying violence is not just an NYPD problem, and bring state lawmakers, the federal government, DAs, and the court system to the table. The sea of violence comes from many rivers. We must dam every river that feeds this greater crisis. Professor Keith Ross at John Jay Criminal College of Criminal Justice is a retired NYPD officer, three years with the anti-crime unit. He agrees with the mayor. If this is not a concerted effort between law enforcement and the courts, district attorneys included, it's going to be victims of gun violence that get left behind. Public advocate Jamani Williams, though, warning not to return to what he calls the failed policies of the past. He wants community stakeholders to be included in CompStat meetings and update NYPD residential requirements to live in communities where they serve. We are actually getting a lot of guns off the street right now. Uh, so police, in that regard, are actually doing the job we're asking. They're making these arrests. They're taking the guns. Historic numbers. And so I'm not sure what this unit would do more that isn't already being done. Now, we asked the mayor about that residency requirement. He says, yes, she agrees with the public advocate. The mayor also will lobby Albany to amend the law for gun arrest so a 16 or 17-year-old can be charged in criminal court rather than family court. A new mayor usually has one big ask of Albany. This might be it. Meanwhile, the NYCLU, which has been a vocal critic of that anti-crimes unit, says they're not commenting at this time until they have a chance to fully review the mayor's plan.
Snoop Dogg is performing at the Super Bowl. I doubt they're going to be asked to do 187 on an undercover cop. But he is playing the Super Bowl with Dr. Dre. They could do F the police too, maybe. Incredible. That even topped. I was staggered. I was at the grocery store. I saw a box of Cheerios and it had a huge image of iced tea. I said, didn't he do cop killers? How do you get on the Cheerios box? They don't have protests with the uh, the honeybee. Remember how everybody flipped out when they had a so-called interracial relationship in the Cheerios commercial and everybody got mad? Surely you can't have cop killers on the Cheerios box. But I mean, hey, if Snoop is at the Super Bowl, then new day on the plantation. Anywho, our broadcast for today, perfect timing. We just had, uh, I think the entire time, if we make it to February 2000 or February 21st of this year, 13 years of the cow since we've been back on the air. We still failed at our mission, replace white supremacy with justice. But we have picked up lots of listeners in the New York City area and folks were just saying hey they got a new mayor mayor eric adams you just heard in the audio segment uh that's lots of opportunities to discuss racism white supremacy they just had the uh shooting unfortunately in new york of uh two enforcement officials uh, i think they're both classified as non-white uh jason rivera and wilbert morrell uh, but lots of talk along with all of the reports of gun violence uh, over the couple of years of the pandemic and what have you. Uh, so the new mayor of NYC, tough on crime, former police officer, Mayor Eric Adams. Lots to chat about with all of this. One of our investors uh, sent us a report. Uh, it was posted at Legalese, how I got secret NYP, NYPD misconduct reports and how you can too. Uh, we talk pretty frequently about how information is concealed uh, in the system of racism, white supremacy. Lots of times words, being deceptive with words is a big way uh, that information is concealed from non-white people. So thought, hmm, could be interesting. And in addition to writing this report, our guest today has talked lots about reform of the police department in New York and even about the new mayor of the city. Uh, so we'll get an opportunity, hopefully, to touch on all of the above. And even some of our listeners in the New York City area uh, can chime in, ask a question or three, perhaps. See how much time we have. Uh, our guest for today is a writer, social media marketer, blogger and online public relations promotion a promoter uh, he's licensed to practice law in the state of new york uh, in his early career he worked with the citizen complaint review board uh, which reviews accusations of nypd misconduct and recommends discipline when necessary they do not have the authority to enforce any of these recommendations but they can make suggestions much like victims of racism uh, our guest says this group uh, 
would need real power in order to make some changes in the NYPD so we don't have any more of these Eric Garner type situations. Uh, we will discuss his time with the Citizen Complaint Review Board, as I said, maybe even some of his thoughts on Mayor Eric Adams, his first few days in office. Pleasure to have him on the program. Joining us live, our guest, Mr. John Tufel. Uh Let's see, Mr. Tufel, are you with us, sir? Yes, I am. Thank you so much for having me. And you uh, pronounced my name right, so that's great. <laughs> oh, that was question one. I thought I botched it Tufel. That's the correct way, correct pronunciation? You, no, you got it. Most people go Teufel, but no, you got it. <sighs> Cheers for Gus T. One right, right on. Uh, thank you yep. so much for sharing uh, a bit of your Monday evening with us last day in January. Uh, for or I guess for our investor who shared your report, he's already in the know. But for everybody else, uh, this might be their first time hearing about you and the work that you do. Uh, if you'd like to give kind of a, a short synopsis, that would be grand for our listeners. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, so essentially, a long time ago, about a year and a half ago, um, it was during the height of the uh George Floyd protests, the Black Lives Matter protests here in New York. And um, I decided to request some documents uh, from the CCRB, the agency you uh, mentioned earlier, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which uh, is ostensibly our city's independent oversight board uh, of the NYPD. Uh, and I knew that these documents existed because I had previously worked for CCRB many years ago. Um, so I made the request for those reports, um, and I'll explain it, what those reports contain in a bit, but just briefly, um, I was denied. I appealed that denial. They denied my appeal. Um, they wouldn't give them up. And so I sued the city, and uh, I filed a pretty lengthy memorandum of law, uh, a petition. I served the agency. And I said that they were illegally withholding these documents and that they should be in the public. And uh, a couple of months, I guess, after I filed that lawsuit, I got a call from the city uh, and they said, we've decided to settle the case. And they said, we believe these documents should be in the public eye and they produced them to me. And uh, now these closing reports, which are essentially narratives of police misconduct, detailed, lengthy narratives of every incident uh, that an, a citizen of, uh, or a civilian in New York City has complained about is produced by the CCRB. It includes witness statements, evidence, uh, or analysis of evidence, things of that nature, and it's all contained in these reports. So now these are open for public uh, disclosure. And I'm working with some people right now to try to request for using our freedom of information law as many of these reports as possible we're trying to make them public uh, and it is a really valuable resource for anybody who wants to see what NYPD misconduct looks like firsthand I mean these things they kind of read like tragic short stories a lot of them they are um, you know some of these incidents are quite brutal and uh, quite enraging and uh, we think the public should be able to read them. We think defense lawyers should be able to have access to them. We think civil rights attorneys should be able to review them. Uh, and so that's uh, that's basically what I did. And I'm uh, really excited that, you know, that they produced them. And 
I think it's a good thing that these are in the public eye now. Hmm. Right on. We'll dig into some of the details of your report and why this is important, as well as some of your other thoughts, new mayor, all that good stuff. Uh, before we get forward, for folks who have not seen you, visited the website, or seen some of your reports, uh, are you classified as a white man? I am a white man, yeah. Okay. Uh, for this program, context of white supremacy, I use the word racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. Uh, I use the same definition for both terms. That definition, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I do think that that's a very good definition of racism and white supremacy. And I think you'd have to be blind to not think that such a system exists. I mean, there's certainly uh, a concentrated group of white people who are dedicated to ensuring that they retain every bit of privilege they've managed to accrue through violence, through uh, other means. Uh, yeah, I, I'd agree with that 100%. Uh, one thing or at least one pattern that I've noted in talking to white guests over 13 years, if we last a month, uh, they will use what I think is the incorrect P word. They will frequently reference white privilege when what we're really talking about is white power. White people mm. have power over non-white people. And for some reason, White people are unwilling, uncomfortable, acknowledging and pointing out white power. We've had tons of white people, Tim Wise and lots and lots and lots who long, long, everlasting lists of all of their white privilege. But white power, is, is that accurate? That white people dedication, that racism, white supremacy is about maintaining white power over non-white people? Yes, I do. I, I actually think that's a really good point because sometimes I think that discourse about privilege can be a little bit uh, wonky and a little bit hard to understand. And power is a much more accurate way of, of stating that. Yes. Yeah, white power. Exactly. This is the, the, the reason that this group of people, white supremacists, racists, behave the way they do is to retain and enlarge their own power. I think that's absolutely true. Right on. Uh, let's see. Also, we've been asking a number of our white guests for a few years now. Um, there was a report authored by a non-white writer. Uh, he was talking about racism pretty explicitly. This was in a mainstream publication. Uh, the sentence he wrote, white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough? And I've been asking our white guests with the first portion of that sentence, white people are often greatly 
and sincerely pained by racism as a white man you talk about racism you're around other white people um, just your general observation do you think that a significant number of individuals classified as white are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism you know that's a really good question I think that it I think that there's an element of maybe in using language like that, there seems like there could be an element of maybe trying to make a false comparison between the pain of experiencing racism and the pain of viewing racism as a white person. So for a white person to say, oh, I am greatly pained by racism. I mean, certainly you may dislike it and a lot of white people do right like and that's a good thing a lot of white people are anti-racists a lot of white people are trying to fight racism to the extent that they're able right but to say that they're greatly pained by it to me it's like it's kind of like oh poor you white people kind of language a little bit right like um i mean maybe i feel you know and i do feel enraged by racism but my me as a white person just viewing racism being inflicted on others i i don't know i wouldn't want to diminish the experience of people who experience racism so i think saying someone is greatly a white person is greatly pained by it seems a little bit like that to me but, I mean, I appreciate the sentiment. It's maybe just not the words I would use. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's see. Do or what, what evidence would you submit to prove that white people or that a lot of white people are anti-racist or trying to fight against the system of racism, white supremacy? What evidence would you submit to back that claim? Boy, in terms of like, <laughs> I mean, a, a lot is a subjective term, right? Like, and I think that there's a certain amount of um, latent racism that even the best intentioned white people engage in uh, and carry with them. Um, that said, I mean, I know from my own personal experience, I know comrades and allies who I hope are sincere in trying to fight against racist institutions. And, you know, this means different things to different people. Uh, you know, there's, for some people, this could mean like uh, what I consider to be some sort of symbolic victories of like, you know, ensuring there's more diversity and representation in certain institutions that themselves are inherently corrupt whether that's fighting against racism or not, I don't know. I mean, that's not for me to say. And then there are people who I think are really doing good work and trying to at least dismantle institutions that inflict power on black people and other people of color. Um, so, I mean, in terms of evidence, I, could, I, I couldn't point to any data. I really couldn't. I couldn't point to any data. I know people who I hope are, who I believe and hope to be sincere in trying to dismantle 
white supremacist and racist institutions. And I think that's a good thing, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell you that that is a lot, right? Uh, <laughs> maybe that's me being optimistic. So I really, I don't know. I think it's, a, I think it's a very valid thing to ask though. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. Context of white supremacy, justice. Uh, she does not sound like that at all and has not sounded like that for a long time. I appreciate the honesty, although that was uh, one of my favorite words in the English language, pussyfooting, uh, because it took a while to get to. I couldn't point to any data. And we have had a number of white people who have just, when I've asked that exact same question, no. In fact, you'd have to rewind when I asked the original question, do you think that that sentence is true? White people sincerely greatly pains. We've had a lot of white people. No. And that's all they had. This yeah. <laughs> they didn't even give an explanation yeah. because they said the same <laughs> yeah. thing that you did with a lot fewer buckets of words. They already knew there's not really any data that I could point to to say that that's even true. Like, yeah, why even say that? In fact, yeah. let's ask it this way. Would it be way easier to for me to find evidence all over the world? White people are dedicated to maintaining power over non-white people. Would it be much easier for me to find that evidence? Oh, yeah. I think you could find that evidence in a snap. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Before I get to some of our uh, other topics, one thing, we're talking to someone in the legal profession. Um, do you think, uh, oh, do you think, uh, let's see, do you think it's logical for individuals classified as not white to be suspicious of anyone who is classified as white in the system of white supremacy, even yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Much obliged, much obliged. Uh, let's see before I did my research. So I definitely want to talk about the report at legal ease and even some of your reports about, uh, changing policies uh, with the NYPD, but I was checking your Twitter feed and some of your other reports and I thought I saw, you can correct me if I made some errors I do from time to time. Uh, is your fiance named Matthew? I think you wrote about this publicly. Yes. Okay. Okay. Fiance is Matthew. Yeah. yeah. His name is Matthew. Yeah. He's in the other room right now. Yeah. All right on. Shout to Matthew. Uh, is he also classified as a white man? He is. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you write that Matthew is a flight attendant? Uh, yes, that's correct. He is. Okay. 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 Got four right so far. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, yeah. If you can indulge me, we will get to the NYPD and all that, I promise. But we have talked about air rage on this program for a while. That's been one of my personal uh, topics for about the last four or five months or so. Uh, I thought I saw that you wrote that. Matthew has come home, I guess, to you or maybe texted or typed or all of the above. And man, this unruly behavior has been ridiculous and the types of things that we've had to deal with. What have you heard from Matthew? Oh, uh, Gus, it's enraging. Um, it, I mean, it, it's it's infuriating. Uh, you know, he has come home. You know, I mean, recently he came home and he said it's just not the same job that it used to be. And, 
I, you know, I hear this from all his friends too, who are all flight attendants. Um, the horror stories, I mean, they happen on a weekly basis. I mean, flight attendants have kind of become like punching bags, uh, in this COVID era that, that these kind of reactionary, um, people take their anger out on flight attendants and, uh, yeah, it, it's really, and you know, no one is standing up for them. The government's not, their company's not. Um, and you know, I see it firsthand. It, it, it's, it's become a much more difficult and much more, um, abuse laden job than it used to be. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's told me so many horror stories. It, it's, it's on the regular. It, it's really unfortunate. Can we, can you give us one that happened to him personally, one that sticks out in your mind? Oh yeah, let's see. What's a recent recent one? Um I mean they're all they all typically follow the same uh same line. I mean lately it's masking. It's uh a refusal to wear a mask. And I mean in a recent uh incident that he had, you know, he can get it from both sides because uh a passenger might come up to him and say, Oh, this person's not wearing a mask. And he will go over and say, you know, sir, please put your mask on. And the person will refuse or will say, well, I don't have to or something like that. And it becomes an extended back and forth. Uh, you know, thankfully, he's never been. I'm trying to think, actually, has he ever been on a flight that actually had to divert or turn around because of the mask thing? Actually, yeah, I think he was, but it was a long time ago. I mean, that happened once where he was on a flight that actually flew back to where it had taken off from because the person refused to put a mask on. Um, you know, it, it's, they're all pretty similar incidents. I mean, thank God he's never been punched. Um, but you know, he's been called a, can I, can I curse on here? Is that okay? <laughs> uh, what did they say? <laughs> uh, an effing, an effing a-hole, like wow. things like that. I mean, he's, uh, you know, they, they, it's abuse is what it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, he was on one flight that had to divert and go back to the ground because the person refused to put a mask on. So, um, you know, it, it's unfortunate. It really is. Wow. Uh, now yeah. you, you said kind of the same patterns of abuse, the cursing and about masks and even having to di divert a plane. One of the patterns that I've seen in this, uh, really all over the world, it has been white passengers who've been engaged. I've been calling it white air rage because I just haven't seen tons of people that I think would be classified as black getting on planes and you're not going to tell me to put a mask on and just, you know, being yeah. totally, uh, what has, has that been the same pattern with, with Matthew? Has he been telling you that it's been white people, non-white people? Yeah, I think it's been, yeah, I think it's been all white people. I think it's been all white people. Yeah. White. Yeah. So I, I would, I would agree with that white air rage that's what i've been saying and in fact i think i mentioned this past weekend they talked about being serious about going after domestic terrorists i said hey, start right there with all of the white air rage that right there should get you on the no-fly list and domestic terrorist list like you can't even follow rules on a flight and endanger everyone's safety on board like oh my gosh imagine what you could do when you get your feet back on the ground yeah, I mean, this is part of the problem is that there's no consequences for the people who do this. I mean, maybe they'll be fined and then they'll book another flight the next week, you know, and 
they'll make those new flight attendants' lives miserable. Like there, there hasn't really been there hasn't really been much in the way of consequences for people who do this stuff. Maybe in the most egregious incidents where there's physical violence, but in uh, you're more like run of the mill, just insulting, refusing to put a mask on. There is no no fly list really. So that they are free to fly again and and make some other flight a miserable experience for everyone on board. And you're right. I mean, it's I don't want to say it's all white people because I have no idea, but at least in my experience, it's been all white people <laughs> that have given Matthew a hard time. That's been what I've seen. The people who were not cooperating with rules, the times that I've flown personally in the past two years have been exclusively look like people that would be classified as white. Uh, and frankly, I just don't think that non-white people, I'm a black male. I just can't imagine uh, if it was large numbers of black people started getting on planes and being unruly. I just can't imagine that going unpunished. Uh, just in my view, another example of white power system of white supremacy, racism, but much obliged. Yeah. Uh, Hope. And it's safety. I can't emphasize that enough. This is not just making it a miserable experience. This is an unsafe experience uh, being in the air and all the unsafe for Matthew and other flight attendants, unsafe for other passengers. The flight crew it is a safety issue. Emphasis on safety. Always. And the racism. I remember we watched the uh, congressional hearing on all of this and they had a black flight attendant. and He talked about being called a nigger boy by a white passenger who was in the process of telling him that he wasn't going to wear a mask and, you know, all the rest of it. Anywho. Uh, oh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, he had a friend who got punched in the face and, uh, yeah, and, I mean, flight attending is a very diverse profession. I mean, there are a lot of, of black and uh, black flight attendants and flight attendants of other races and you have to wonder if in certain circumstances it is white people like kind of taking out their rage because the flight attendant on a flight is like a figure of authority, right? They're there to enforce the rules. And you got to imagine that with some of these white people, the idea that a black person would ask them to obey a rule or tell them to obey a rule that that would uh, hit them in a way that, uh, maybe a white flight attendant doing that wouldn't. And that's another example of other white power being uh, challenged in some way. And so I'm sure that's part of it, too. Hmm. Context of white supremacy, uh, Mr. John Tufel. Um, mm, 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 mm. I've said that consistently. I just I do not understand what it means to be classified as white. This sterling illustration i'm in seattle washington they have mask mandates white people tell me what to do all the time my whole life it's not that big a deal just not understanding being white and especially having a non-white person telling you what to do with your body mm -hmm. wow you have seen two mm -hmm. years i've called it white defiance for two years now pivoting uh I said you would get to NYPD, your reports. So hopefully we can have a chance to chat about a few of them. But the first report that I was sent by one of our investors at Legalese, how I got secret NYPD misconduct reports and how you can too. Uh, I'll read a little bit. Uh, you write <clears throat> at 22, 
I was excited that my first job was to bring corrupt officers to justice. Of course, it didn't turn out quite like that. By my second year, I felt that too much white washing, what a term, was happening after what I thought was an especially egregious case I left. Uh, if you can, what was what was the case? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I always think about this case. So this was a case where, or the one I was referring to uh, in that paragraph was a case where um, a guy was uh, sitting on his stoop in front of his apartment building and the police came up to him and started questioning him. Uh, he tried to go back into his building, into his apartment. They pushed past him as he tried to go inside and went into his apartment and started searching his apartment all over the place um, and never obtained any sort of permission or anything like that. And eventually found drugs that uh, he claimed that they weren't his drugs. I, whether that's true or not, I really don't know. But found drugs and charged him with, um, with possession of, I think it was marijuana, charged him with possession of marijuana, if I recall correctly. And we interviewed, or uh, me and I think another investigator on the case with me, we interviewed both the individual who was arrested as well as a bunch of witnesses uh, who were present on the scene who saw this all happen and all of them said the same thing, that this is what happened, that these officers pushed into this man's apartment and just started searching it out of nowhere. I interviewed the officers, and the officers were inconsistent in their testimony. They had clearly um, all spoken with each other to try to get on the same page. They appeared insincere in their interviews. Um, their memo book entries were uh, devoid of detail and had been written much later. Um, it all seemed to me like a cover-up, and the officers claimed their story was incredible. Their story was that this man had invited them in and said, come into my apartment and search my entire apartment, knowing, in theory, that he had drugs in there, that he had said to them, please, come on in and search. And, I mean, you know, it was clearly nonsense. These, these cops were clearly lying. They were anti-crime. They were detectives of the anti-crime unit, and... Um, I wanted to, uh, we had at, at the option of charging an officer with lying during an investigation. And I wanted to charge them with lying because I felt that I had enough evidence to show that they had lied to me in their interviews, these cops. And the agency, the CCRB, would not allow me to do that. And it was infuriating because, I mean, I had them dead to rights. Uh, their story was incredible. It made no sense. All the other civilian witnesses on scene contradicted it. They had contradicted themselves in their own uh, interviews, but the CCRB would not let me charge them with uh, with lying. And I kind of, I don't know, it became like a whole thing. I sent emails to the members of the board to let them know about it. I refused to sign off on the investigative report. Um, eventually, uh, a the CCRB opened an investigation into me and I had to get the union involved. It was a whole thing. And at that point I left, I said, I can't do this anymore. 
And I was supposed to go to law school. And uh, so the timing worked. And I said, okay, I'm getting out of here. And I quit. What what happened to the officers in this case? Oh, nothing. They I what what eventually happened with the report was they gave it because I refused to sign off on it, and a report couldn't be sent to the board until an investigator signed off on it, and I refused. So they reassigned it to a different investigator who was willing to play ball, a more pliable investigator who would do what the management wanted, and he unsubstantiated it. Said, "Well, we can't tell." who's telling the truth and who's lying here, so therefore we have to just close the case. And nothing happened to those officers. Standard operating procedure on so many levels. Um, mm -hmm. The lie, I mean, hey, we talk about that all the time. The number one tool of racist man, racist woman, racist child, lying. Uh, now, two Voltron effect. He said, seems like they talk to each other to get on the same page. We hear that. We hear that workplace racism, which basically this is the same thing, uh, but coordinating to get their story straight so they can reinforce each other's lies. Uh, three, having mm -hmm. an expectation that other white people got your back. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, we mix up the story and we kind of don't have our lie together, but whatever the, uh, and it's, the Citizen Complaint Review Board, CCRB, uh, the good white people there, they got our back. They will, you know, rubber stamp all of this. And as he said, play ball, psh, no problem. How many, right. what, what were the, the demographics of the CCRB while you remember, if you remember? The investigative staff was pretty diverse, which I was a member of, I was an investigator. So the investigators were, were diverse. I mean, there were a lot of, of black and um, uh, brown investigators, a lot of white ones too. Um, I, how to break it down, I couldn't tell you, but in the management levels, those were more white dominated. And when I was there, and also the current leadership uh, is also white. And when I was there, the, the ranks of leadership, I believe were all white people. I'm trying to think if there was anyone non-white who was leading the agency at the time and the answer to that, I think, is no. So, yeah, the management ranks were heavily white. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. think I might have heard that once or twice before. Just maybe the, the individual in this case specifically where they and even the details of this case. I've heard this before. Was this a white person or non-white person where they barged in off the stoop and went in his house and the black person? Black yeah, person. It, was a, it was a black guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've heard all this before. And in, in fact, I'd say, wow, I didn't know any details about this case because this would be a whole separate report in terms of just the kind of footnote kind of aside that he mentions it uh, in the report that we're talking about. But like the mention of the anti-crime unit, which is now back on the scene in 2022, uh, courtesy of the brand new mayor uh, to fight crime and gun violence. So we'll double back to that. But wowzers, how about that? Uh, so that is, I can't even say it's amazing because I've, I've heard like all of that before, like every single detail of it. The police officers are lying about all of this. Black guy seems kind of suspicious. Maybe he didn't do anything. Ah, no big. Was he convicted in that case with, with the drugs? Did they get I actually don't think he was. And I think that was part of 
my evidence against the officers. Eventually, the district attorney declined to prosecute the case because I I think that even even the DA, right, who <laughs> has their own problems, I think even the DA was like this this is this doesn't hold up. This this is a very weird story that these detectives are telling. And it's not going to hold up in front of a jury. And it was an illegal search is what it was. So I actually think, you know, I think eventually the charges were dropped. But think about what this guy probably had to go through uh, in terms of getting arrested and uh, getting a lawyer and all that before those charges were eventually dropped. I mean, it's still, you know, a terrible experience. Um, Mm. But no, I don't think he ever I'm almost positive, if I recall correctly, the charges were dropped. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What a disgrace uh, and so painfully common. In fact, if you all have a really good memory, if you can hold on to this for seven days, uh, Aya Gruber should be a guest on the program the same time next Monday. And she has a whole book talking about Ooh. how the current wave of feminism, Me Too and all of that has the result of having black guys like this in prison. Uh, Think Anthony Mm -hmm. Broadwater being very punitive uh, and saying people get away with all these crimes against the same people where they say, hey, we can go out and lie and just run in somebody's house without a warrant. The same people who would have a tough time combating that would be the same people who would have a really tough time if somebody says, ooh, he raped me where maybe this is Alice Siebold. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. The people mm-hmm. that would have the mm-hmm. toughest time. <sighs> that privileged black male. Anywho, uh, you continue. <laughs> he chuckled. He chuckled is laughable. The privileged black male. So they continue. Uh, the same report. I'm skipping down a little bit. How I got secret NYB misconduct reports. So how can you get these reports? It's easy. Log on to the city's FOIL portal and click request a record. For the category, choose public safety. And for the agency, choose CCRB. Now describe what you want as specifically as possible. For example, all closing reports prepared for an incident of alleged misconduct that occurred on January 1, 2019 in the 70th Precinct or all closing reports containing an allegation against Officer John Smith, currently of the 70th precinct. Enter your contact information and voila, you've now made a legally proper FOIL request. The CCRB may drag its feet in getting you the document and I would never put it past the city to play games, but you should receive the report reports requested in a few months remember you don't have to be the one who reported the incident i did not know this you do not have to be the one who reported the incident any report is a public document for interested party that i thought was crazy is that true mr tufel you don't have to be involved you can any public document is yours to access yeah, yeah. The the reports that were produced to me eventually, I had no connection to them at all. They were reports of police officers who had done some terrible misconduct uh, that that made the news, and uh, I was able to get those reports. So yeah, no, there's um, there is uh, there's no requirement that you be the one who reported or witnessed or anything like that. 
Wow. Okay. Uh, and so this should yeah. be pretty straightforward for folks if they say, hey, I had an officer, I had an experience, or I just want to do some digging uh, and check out folks on the department. This should be fairly straightforward. And as you said, you you should expect some delay. They're not going to try and be super expedient with this process. But, I mean, if you fill out the information as you described, you should be able to get access to these reports. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I, you know, when I, when the city settled this and when I first brought the lawsuit, what I eventually envisioned was that if there is a police officer who's known either in your neighborhood or among you and your friends or um, you heard of an incident or something like that, uh, and you know that this police officer has a reputation for violence and abuse of power, then get his reports and see what his deal is. Uh, and, you know, publicize them, do what you can. If, if, if you're involved in an incident with a cop that you think could lead to a lawsuit, get his reports. See if this guy has a history of misconduct. See if the city should have known about this and should have fired him many years ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is valuable. There are a lot of uses for this data. Is this like a wide known uh, technique or is this something that you just became kind of a kind of an esoteric method that you became of because you're in the legal profession? Uh, I think a lot of people know about the freedom of information law. Um, the reports themselves, I don't think a lot of people knew existed because, and the only reason I knew about it was because I had worked there. So these specific reports, like I was aware that they, that the CCRB had these, and I was aware that I thought legally speaking that they should be produced, that they're not subject to any FOIL uh, exceptions or exemptions. Um, and yeah, I mean, the FOIL law, it, it kind of is, in a way, the FOIL law is kind of a not-as-well-known, perhaps, method that people can use to get documents from any government agency. Uh, and it can be complicated. They can deny you wrongly. It can be a little difficult to unearth the records. But, you know, with some grit and some, uh, you know, some effort, people can get really interesting stuff out of the government. They really can. Right on. Context of white supremacy. Uh, our guest, John Tufel, Esquire, uh, in the great New York. Um, I'm all about documentation. So certainly uh, for listeners, especially folks in the New York City area, uh, document, document, as he said, be prepared. It might take some months or some weeks or what have you if they try and stall you and see if you forget about it. But bam, see what sort of information that you can get might be astounding even just to see the number of reports and that sort of thing uh with an officer yep. uh let's see i'll give out the number oh i see the hand so the number is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate. So let's see this before we nab some of our callers. Uh, as I said, our guest, Mr. Tufo, he's written uh, a number uh, of different reports. 
a number of different outlets uh, pertaining to New York City. Uh, you also wrote the police reform that wasn't. Now, this is talking more about some things that happened under uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio. Uh, same problem, though, trying to reform NYPD. Uh, and you this is saying kind of in the wake of the George Floyd protests uh, from a year ago or so, uh, or I guess maybe it's been two years already. My goodness. Um, the George Floyd protests and people saying that there have to be changes. Uh, you said in New York City, residents of all races demanded action from our elected officials. Uh, and I gave me pause, even reminded me of the first question. I said, do you, did you see a, a significant number of people classified as white who wanted change, meaning eliminating racism, white supremacy within the NYPD? Um, you, uh, well, I mean, the protests themselves were diverse. Um, I will say that, um, obviously there was a large number of, of black people, a large number of brown people, but there were also a lot of white people. Um, you know, it's so hard to know what people's real motivations are, but at, at the very least, when they showed up and were in the streets, and especially the people who put themselves at some risk of police violence, of arrests, um, I, I have to assume that they have good intentions, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they were diverse protests. They were. Uh, and it was heartening to a certain extent to see that. Yikes. Uh, well, I'll say it this way as a victim of white supremacy uh, who has studied this problem for a number of years. There's lots of evidence of individuals classified as white going out and joining marches or protests against racism, and they still don't get the problem solved. So at least at this point, yeah, it might be reasonable for one to assume that maybe at minimum these are not the most powerful white people to affect change and or maybe they aren't really serious about replacing white supremacy with justice somewhere in between but it's not exactly new white people joining a yeah. march or three and then these problems continuing uh, with, in fact are you familiar with James Lowen? No, I don't think I know the name. Oh, okay. He wrote a, or he wrote many books. Uh, he passed away mm, right towards the end of last year. Uh, he wrote the book that they talked about most often, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me. Uh, oh, book, of course. Yeah. Uh, see there? Uh, the book that I think is more important is Sundown Towns, uh, which we read on the book club. Uh whew this here line from sundown towns, I think is so important for our report and the question that I just asked about, are there a substantial number of white people who want to see the NYPD reformed? This is from James Lowen sundown towns. He writes only a few sundown suburbs resorted to the brazen city limits signs used by some independent sundown towns. Instead, police often provide the first 
defense against African-Americans in sundown suburbs, police harassment, including racial profiling, can be even scarier than private violence because one can hardly turn to the police for protection. Sundown suburbs near cities with sizable African-American populations are especially likely to rely on their police and the notoriety in the black community they earn to stay white. Mary Pat Baumgartner pointed this out about Hampton, her pseudonym for a New York City suburb. Since residents cannot do away with arterial streets altogether, however, they turn to the police to scrutinize those who use them. End quote. Residents of sundown suburbs expect and applaud police harassment of outsiders. I wish he'd said niggers right there. That would have make it crystal clear. But that's why I asked that question because I don't think the problem is that white people are ignorant about the George Floyd's and Eric Garner's. I didn't think they were ignorant before all of those incidents happened. I think James Lowen is accurate. White people expect and applaud this behavior. Your thoughts, Mr. Tufel? Yeah, I, I think there's two points I'd like to make. Going back to what you said earlier, Gus, about the phenomenon of white people showing up to a protest or three is not a new one. I mean, in my own personal life, I marched with people who once the initial excitement, right, the initial feeling that everybody had that maybe change was coming or something like that, once that died down, once it wasn't massive protests in the street every day and every night in New York City, they went back to their normal lives. And they did not see this as a continuing project, or at least they weren't willing to make it a continuing project in their own lives. And I think that's, you know, the well-intentioned liberal, perhaps, is the type of person who will jump on a bandwagon when that bandwagon is happening, but they're not willing to take the, they're not willing to give up any of their power to actually make change happen. And I think that's a huge issue that we had. I mean, even with friends of mine, you know, you, you, we saw it happen where people would be involved and then peter out. And now they're not involved at all in this struggle. And so I think that's a huge, huge, I think it's a great point you made. And I think it's a huge issue that the white community has that sustained kind of involvement that really could affect change. There's just not a lot of people who are willing to do it. Um, and I think you're also, you also made a really good point that the people who were marching are not the ones who are really in a position to affect major change. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true, too. You know, the elites, the elites are, are comfortable in their position. They don't want to see change happen. And I think that quote that you just read, uh, that very 
uh, very beautiful prose, I think gets to the point that the conception of modern policing is about, to a large extent, uh, enforcing white power and enforcing white supremacy. I mean, that's that's the history of policing in America, um, that it grew out of slavery. And I think that's still true to this day. And I think a lot of people, a lot of white people do support on some level the police mm-hmm. because they feel that the police are a guard against the uh, potential that black people and other uh, oppressed uh, racial communities could rise up and could somehow have the same power that white people have. So I think I think modern policing is based in racism. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think until we reckon with that, it, we're not going to see any substantial change. We'll nab some of our callers as we go here, uh, talking with Mr. John Tufel, uh, one of our callers uh, in the New York area, a uh, victim in New Jersey. Did you have a question for Mr. Tufel? Should be with us, sir. Hey, hey, how you doing? Right poorly. Okay, um, I got a question. So the the mayor race was real interesting. You had uh oh, we were hearing you. Yeah, I can't hear him. (laughs) You said the mayor's race is real interesting, and then bang, flatline. Are you still with it? Uh oh, I thought I heard you. Now don't. But, But I don't know what's going on here. Can you hear us? Caller New Jersey or hey, I'm sorry. Hello, did you hear me? No, Hello? we did not we did not hear you at all. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My my phone keeps linking to uh to my Bluetooth. No, I said um with the election where you had the uh gentleman who was affiliated with uh that uh uh what was the the, the Angels and you had uh, Eric Adams. Both of them were, you know, basically pro tough on crime. Do you think Eric Adams would have been elected if he wasn't, you know, pro-cop, tough on crime in New York City? Um, probably no. I mean, no. Honestly, I don't. Uh, I think that Eric Adams got elected in large part. I mean, I like to think of Eric Adams as kind of the New York Post president, uh, president mayor. I mean, I think he's. I think his election was the result of this narrative that was being pushed primarily by the New York post and also by other media outlets in the city that New York was like a hellhole, that violence was right. crazy and you couldn't even step outside of your house. And I think Eric Adams was managed to present himself as someone who could do something about this, a real tough on crime person. And, you know, he rose to the top of the, primary and eventually won. Although, I mean, having said that, Adams has been a, a, a New York City politician for a long time now. And even without that narrative, he he would have been a contender. But I do, I, my own personal belief is that that's what put him over the top. Yeah, absolutely. Got you. So, the, yeah, if, 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 Slee, if Sliwa wasn't so controversial, you know, he may have had a chance. Um um, and, and for people that don't know, um, guests like the New York people that's not in the New York, New Jersey area, the, the New York Post is more like a what well, you can classify as a right wing tabloid, kind of like Fox News of yeah. uh, 
Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and same sense. ownership. Same. O- Rupert Murdoch owns the Post and Fox News. So yeah, right. I, I, it's like right. our Fox News in paper form. Yeah. Right. It's Fox News in paper form. Um. So okay. So you seen? Did you see the uh, the show of force? I, I considered it a show of force. Um. Of the uh, during the police funeral. Um with um and basically shutting down the city and 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 again you know um i do not promote any violence against police but with that show of force i mean can can one really believe that there's going to be like some real regulation of these uh plain clothes police officers because i mean even when we looked at the mass mandates where in manhattan you had the police and the ticket agents giving out masks, but in Bronx, in the Bronx, you had law enforcement, you know, basically getting physical with people that didn't have masks. Mm-hmm. So can we really believe that Eric Adams is going to have some kind of like real accountability uh, for just, you know, uh, um, force, you know, unnecessary force that's used against uh, people classified as black? That's a great question. I think I think the answer is no, and I, I that's there's a few reasons that I think that, but the primary reason I think that is because in New York City, the mayor doesn't really have much of an ability to police the police. The mayor doesn't really have control of the police force. He appoints the commissioner, and the commissioner then has the legal authority to uh, discipline the force, the members of the force, as he or she sees fit. And we've been trying to change that in New York City. We want to empower an independent agency that is not composed of police officers uh, that can actually take action when officers do abuse their power and commit acts of violence. Eric Adams hasn't signed on to those changes in the law. He hasn't signed on to any changes in the law. So even if he thinks in his heart of hearts, and I don't know what's in Eric Adams' heart, although I'm pretty skeptical that he means this, but even if he really feels, oh, I can control this police force, I mean, how does he think he's going to do that? He does not have the legal tools to do that. Uh, So, I mean, until we do see, and, you know, maybe this city council is willing to stand up to Adams. Maybe this city council is willing to say, we need to pass these laws that empower us to control our police department a little bit. Unless that happens, he's not going to be able to control these officers. Nobody's no mayor. No mayor has been able to control these officers. I mean, New York city, you know, I don't want to sound too um, hysterical or like I'm exaggerating here, but there's a sense that the NYPD is its own independent government within the city of New York with no accountability they get their budget, you know, they blow through their overtime budget. Nobody does anything. They they are by far are, are the biggest budget of all city agencies. I mean, you know, a mayor who wants to actually introduce accountability to the NYPD, that's going to be a really, really big fight. And I just don't think Mayor Adams has it in him. I really don't. Okay, Gus. One more question. I'm I'm so sorry because I'm from the area. Uh, you know, this, this is very important to me, and I work in New York City. Um, my next question. So, with the New York Post, you know, basically promoting that you know New York City is just this wild place. 
Um, do you think a lot of the Black Lives Matter defund the police is really what kind of like is fueling that rhetoric? And I'll I'll, I'll uh, mute myself. Fueling that rhetoric. I mean, that's an interesting. That's an interesting question. I think. I think there's a lot of things that are fueling this narrative. I mean. You can make statistics say a lot of things, right? Like you, like for example, I think in 2021 there was a slight rise in shootings from 2020, whereas other crimes were down. So the New York Post method of of doing that is to say, oh, shootings are up 20 percent. You know, it, it's a nightmare, or whatever. But if you look at it in context, I mean, you know, crime is at the same levels it was at in around 2016. And in 2016, people were call, still calling New York City the safest city in the country. So it's all about how you present this stuff. I think that they're, I think the reasons they're doing this are, yes, I think part of it is a reaction against the defund movement, which they see as a threat. You know, the powers that be see as, as, a, le- as a bunch of crazy leftists and a threat to the established power structure. You know, um, part of it is probably that, blame it on de Blasio. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think part of it is a reaction to the defund the police movement, 100%. Much obliged, our victim in New Jersey. Uh, let's see. Irie in Louisiana. Uh, did you have a question for Mr. John Tufel? Yes, hi, good evening. Um, so, um, first question I want to ask is, since you, um, mentioned, um, the, uh, NYPD being a quasi-government in itself, has anyone ever floated the idea of, um, a taxation strike, um, in the city of New York in order to, um, I don't know, try to, uh, show the government that is official um, the seriousness of the problem and maybe get them to negotiate some things, you know, do a modern-day Tea Party kind of thing, Boston Tea Party kind of action? I've never heard of that. You know, it'd be really... Um, I, not that I wouldn't support it. I've never heard of anyone putting that forward. I think it'd be hard to do because most of the taxes we pay here in New York City, at least those of us who aren't wealthy... Um, are payroll taxes and sales taxes. And you really, I mean, how can you strike? You know, your employer's taking those taxes out. The store you buy stuff at is taking those taxes. So I think it'd be really difficult to do. Um, But hey, I mean, if someone could figure out how to do it, it might be a good way to get their attention. Mm. I was thinking more so with like property tax, because like you said, sales tax and you know, the the other taxes, employment taxes you mentioned can't necessarily be avoided. But um, so, well, I was just wondering, because the only thing it sounds like New York responds to is is uh, money being lost or yeah. gained. Uh, so I have two questions, well, three, and I'll just ask them, and then I'll take the answers uh, muted. As far as a FOIA in general, you might not know in general, but if you know for New York only, 
you know, you can answer that way too. If I wanted to do a FOIA anonymously, but still have the um, information delivered, say, for instance, to like a P.O. box or another address, but just be anonymous, is that something I a person could do? Um, and then the other, well, I'll just let you answer because I don't want to get it fumbled. Sure. Um, I I actually do know a little bit about the federal FOIA laws, um, just because I had to dip into it recently for another thing I'm working on. I do not think you can do it anonymously, unfortunately. Um, depending on what the record is, you could get someone to request it for you, and they their name would be attached to it, or a lawyer could request it for you, and their name would be attached to it. But there, I think that there is a requirement that some name be attached to the request. Yeah. They have to know who they're giving it to. Um, but, okay. you know, I, I know you're not in New York. You could check your local laws, and maybe it's different for local FOIL procedures. Um, but that is my understanding of for federal ones, at least. Okay. Um, as far as... Hmm. Okay, well, that kind of negates the second question. Um, the Brady List. Do you have any experience on gaining information about the Brady List um, in general or in New York and what the process for that would be? Because, um, sidebar, Gus, I shared an email with you about a police officer in Michigan, and it just made me think if this person was on a Brady List, in the first place from other, you know, places he's worked, then he probably wouldn't have got hired. Who knows? But I've heard about this list, and it's supposed to be keeping a record of police who have have multiple complaints. So to the guests, do you know about the Brady list? Do you know how to access such a list in any state? And if you don't, specifically to New York, do you know how to access it? I do know about the Brady list. Um, I think it's accessible for federal employees publicly, I believe. I do not think it's made, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know if New York City Brady lists have been made public. And something in my head makes me think that somebody, that there was a lawsuit about this. But boy, oh boy, would I like to see it because I'm involved in this project right now where we're, where we're doing FOIA requests for officers who have substantiated misconduct to try to get all the closing reports associated with their misconduct incidents. So, I mean, we would, we would do FOILs for those closing reports in a second. Um, and you know, I think probably somebody could do a FOIL for the actual Brady lists and, try to get their hands on them. Um, I'd I have to do more research to see if anyone has done that in New York City yet. Um, I'm almost, you, you really piqued my curiosity so that now I even want to just do a Google search and see if I can see if anyone did it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that would be a really valuable thing to have. Absolutely. Okay. What is the last one? Um, do you have any books you would recommend to individuals that um, practice law pro se, and I will mute my line. Thank you. 
Books for practicing law pro se. Boy, what a question. Um, can, are you still there, caller? Can you tell me if uh, what kind of area of law you're talking about? Uh, I would think uh, self-representation as far as traffic and maybe even some mm. criminal like misdemeanor, um, uh, particularly traffic. And then if you just know anything about maybe something that would help a person glean general um, procedure as far as maybe like writing up uh, motions or just uh, the formal documents like templates or something even. I know I've found them online sure. and I've mimicked them successfully, but if there was like a book or something that was like a you know, uh, pro se law for dummies, I would <laughs> I'd, yeah. I'd uh, be excited <laughs> about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's yeah. It's funny you ask that because um, I, I I my primary practice area is family law here in New York, and some people tr choose to do that represent themselves pro se in divorces or custody cases. And um, I've thought for a long time that a book <laughs> to help them through that would be a really valuable thing. It's different for every jurisdiction, especially traffic and. Um, criminal stuff is going to be different depending on what state you're in. So, you know, I would do a Google search for books of whatever state you're in, criminal law, pro se. I mean, I wish I could give you a specific book that you can look at, but that's how I would start that project. And maybe you can find something, you know, it's tough, right? Like going pro se is always a, a real risk, but it can be worth it for traffic tickets or misdemeanors. So you don't have to shell out money for an attorney. So I hope that helps and good luck. Oh, thank you. I actually um, beat uh, a city. I had to sue a city because they towed my car illegally and then fined oh. me $1,000 plus. I had to pay the towing fee to get my car back. So I um, went to the administrative law judge. They found me still liable. I um, appealed that with a judicial review, of course. And uh, I, sh I shocked and awed them all. But, you know, I had to do some studying, of course. But ever since then, I've been advocating for people to practice some, some law pro se. At least get the ball started until you can find an attorney, make the uh, work a little bit less. Totally. Did you win your appeal? Pa yes, the judicial review. I got my money back. That's great. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, it's this is actually like kind of a, a hobby horse of mine, which is why I'm getting excited. But I think the law is so alienating and so designed to scare away people who don't have um, legal training and legal education, and that's like a huge problem with the law in general. That it's created by elites to. Uh, confuse and um, discombobulate people of, you know, people who don't have the the knowledge that the elites have, right? And that's why you have to shell out a massive amount of money for these lawyers. Like, the whole system is very screwed up. And, of course, it falls on, it falls the hardest on people who are already disempowered by society, like black people or uh, uh, poor people. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that kind of resource of practicing law pro se, super valuable, and I, I would hope that there do exist 
uh, guides like that in your state. So hopefully. Could, can you answer this? And I'm mute for real, for real. Um, when you say elites, who do you mean? Uh, so we know for sure, because, you know, we're, we're learning about the system. So when you say elites, it almost sounds like a metaphor. And I'll mute my line. Legislators, uh, politicians. I mean, the people in power, judges. The law is, the law comes from people in power who are, I, I'm getting a little outside of my area of expertise here, but, you know, legislators are, they tend to be from well-off families because they had the money to run for office. A lot of them are lawyers. They receive campaign contributions from all manners of different industries, and they write the laws. And uh, the laws are not written with a layperson in mind. The laws are written uh, with uh, the mind of, oh, you'll have to hire a lawyer to figure this out. And they're interpreted by judges, who also tend to be well-off, highly educated people uh, who come from that background, that privilege, power, frame of mind. And, you know, it's hard to get it to work for the for the normal person, the average person, because it's not meant to. It's not meant to work for the average person. Um, so that is that's a problem inherent to all systems of law. And I'm not sure there's a good uh, answer to that. But it, it yeah, uh, that's what I would mean by when I say elites. Much obliged. Uh, Irie, congrats. Uh, let's see, number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see, Thomas in New York, uh, if you had a question for Mr. Tufel, you should be with us, sir. Thank you, Gus. Good evening, Mr. Tufel. Um, hey Thomas, how you doing, sir? How long have you lived in New York? Oh God, uh, I moved here when I was eighteen, and I'm thirty-seven, so nineteen years. Nineteen years, okay. Yes. Um, so, why do you think there's a push to convince the public that the crime in New York City is out of control? When uh, you know, in the eighties, nineties, in the early two thousands, there was. 1,500 murders a year, it was way worse. So why do you think that's the push now? Yeah, I, you, first of all, you're 100% right. We're still an incredibly safe city here in New York, one of the safest big cities in the entire world. And they're trying to convince us that you can't even get on the subway without getting a gun stuck in your face, and it's just not true. I think a lot of it is because of the rise of the defund the police movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, and people see this as a weapon they can use to attack those movements, to say, oh, you want to defund the police? Well, look, then everyone's going to get killed, and everyone's going to get robbed, and you're going to get pushed in front of the subway and all that stuff. Um, and I think it's it's a means of attack, uh, 100%. I'm sorry, I was muted. What well, um, what do you think is the role you, you you was touching on it earlier, but you didn't want to get into it? Um, the role of the prosecutors in um covering up all of this. I think prosecutors work very closely with police, and when I say work very closely, like I don't even mean anything insidious about it. It's the same way that two people who work in an office together 
work closely, right? You get to know them. You feel as though that they're your friend. You feel as though um, there are somebody who can be trusted. And I think a lot of prosecutors let that bias toward the police leak into their job. Um, and they're willing to trust police in situations where they shouldn't. Um, I mean, we had a news story that came out very recently where um, a police officer was actually arrested for uh, perjuring himself on the stand multiple times to get people sent to prison who were innocent of any wrongdoing. And now they're vacating something like 300 something convictions that this cop had testified to obtain. And I think any process, I think a, a fair minded prosecutor should have seen this years ago that this guy was making this stuff up, but they, these are their colleagues. They see them as their friends and colleagues. And as a result, they, uh, they overlook issues with credibility and, and things of that nature. And I mean, there's also just generally the role of the prosecutor is to enforce laws that are too often written with, uh, written with, in, written to keep the underclass in the underclass, right? To keep, um, people powerless who don't have any power. And so that's just an inherent part of being a prosecutor. But then, yeah, I mean, even in the practice of it, they are just too close to the police. It's, it's a problem all across the country, um, and it's a problem here in New York. Um, do you, um, uh, just to switch notes, um, um, do you think that white LGBT um, should get civil rights? Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think they should have the same rights that uh, everybody has. Yeah. Um, I I don't know what... what yeah, I mean, they should have the same rights everybody has. Do you, do you think they should be attached to the civil rights legislation? What legislation are you talking about? Um, civil Rights Act that was passed in the 1960s um, where they specified blacks, women. Um, oh, the right. Civil Rights Act. Um, yeah, um, I mean, would I, uh, yeah, would I support a law that adds LGBT people as a protected class under the Civil Rights Act? Uh, yeah, I, I would. Yeah. I think that, I don't, uh, yeah, I think that would be a good thing to have. Sure. So governments shouldn't be able, I mean, the Civil Rights Act, you know, it did a lot of good and governments shouldn't be able to discriminate against individuals because of their sexuality. Um, just like they can't, they shouldn't be able to do that just because of their race. So yeah, I would support that. So the only people that's not included in that legislation is white men, because white women who are gay or lesbian already have civil rights. So you you, you support white men um, using um, LGBT as a right to get their civil rights um, added to that. Well, only if only if they're being discriminated against, not because they're white men, but because they're gay men or transgender men or bisexual men. So like if a white you know, if a gay white guy was fired by their local school, for example, for being gay, I would want them to have some kind of recourse that they could sue the school to say, oh, you fired me because I'm gay, uh, then you shouldn't be able to do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I would support that. 
that was my last question, Buff. Oh, okay. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, just kind of circling back, the question that was asked about the prosecutors uh, and how legislators, those that are in power, they write laws uh, to keep the underclass the underclass. Like That's another one. We're not being direct. Would it be accurate to say that the elites, people who are writing these laws or what have you, predominantly individuals classified as white, they're writing laws to support, maintain the system of white supremacy racism. Is that accurate, Mr. Tufel? Uh, yeah, I think that's a big part of it, yeah. I mean, obviously not every legislator is white, um, and I think that there are also other means and other uh, goals, I should say, that legislators have that can, you know, have class dynamics or to uh, keep male supremacy in place. But yeah, I think a huge part of the law is about keeping uh, black people down, 100%. Male supremacy in place. Is that what you said? Male supremacy? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's not like a, a great turn of phrase, but I think basically my point is that the law exists to keep in place various societal power structures, whether they be based on gender or race or class or anything like that, um, and to, to, not, to ensure that those are not disturbed. And um, so therefore, like, the law is used against black people in a way that it's not against white people. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, I think that's inherent to the nature of law, yeah. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. That's two times. That's kind of a major one. Even in fact, I ask members to recall because they did a lot of talking about Black Wall Street last year and the anniversary. It's been a hundred years and all of these talk about using laws to brutalize black people and steal property and mm -hmm. all the rest of it. But our guest for that program, Amy Schmidt, she was speaking with us and she brought up the Tulsa massacre and all the rest of it. And she said, treating black people uh, like gay people. I said, wow, I can't think of a time where they enacted a massacre like Tulsa, Oklahoma or Rosewood in this part of the world or anywhere in the known universe, just on the basis of them being classified as gay or lesbian. Do you know of such an event, Mr. Tufel? No, I don't. Well, not, no, uh, not in America. I mean, there's certainly been vi state violence against gay people in other countries that I can think of, but no, not in America. Hmm. I'm not even, I'm talking like driving out an entire town of people. That's what I was no, talking about. No, no, that, no, nothing like that. Right. That's what I mean when I'm saying like laws, we go back to the underclass and all of that. There's a system of white supremacy and then everything else. 
there's lots of mistreatment, male supremacy, and they talk even male supremacy in a world where we have to talk about George Floyd and all the rest. They don't even say what have I said for years. They don't even say white male supremacy. They'll say patriarchy. They won't even say white patriarchy if they want to say that. Like, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I get to, well, which way? trying to be decisive I guess I'll do it this way have you have you heard any concerns from other white people that Mayor Eric Adams he might try to help out black New Yorkers and we're worried about that like he might you know try and come in and say he's going to look out for his brothers and sisters and you know mess over white people while he's mayor of New York have you heard any concerns like that you know I haven't directly heard it, but it wouldn't surprise me if in the conservative parts of New York City that is something that's being said. I mean, the thing with Adams is he always presented himself throughout the whole campaign as a moderate, as a guy who wasn't here to shake things up, who wasn't here to um, challenge existing power structures. Uh and, you know, I think people kind of took him at his word. Um, I do think that there are, yeah, I mean, the people who voted for Curtis Sliwa, who was his Republican primary opponent, I think they probably certainly think that Eric Adams is going to be, you know, favoring black people, whatever that means, um, in office. Um, but, you know, he never really presented himself as like a guy who was here to make big changes in the city. So I think that maybe gave people who would normally be um, scared of a black person being elected mayor. Maybe that gave them some like comfort or something like that. Um, but I know I haven't personally heard that, but it wouldn't surprise me to learn that people were saying that in some circles. Hmm. That's interesting. Why? Uh... Why, if I'm being presumptuous, correct me, but why would someone who is classified as white and gay or LGBTQ, why would they be discomforted by the thought of a black mayor? Like what, how would that threaten them or make them uncomfortable? I think there are probably some racist people in the city who just don't like the idea of, uh, I mean, we have, you know, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and all sorts of um, kind of open and proud racists who would be discomfited by that. I mean, absolutely. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. The, uh, well, I guess with the white gay people specifically, they wouldn't see a black mayor as, hey, this is someone who's oppressed they know what it's like to be mistreated and what have you. They wouldn't think this person might better identify with us than just having a regular old white man. Oh. Real- yeah, no, I think that I think there are also people who would feel that way, too. I mean, I think, you know, Adams won by a, a large margin in the city. I mean, he really took the election. You know, Curtis Lewa didn't have a chance. And. um yeah, I think that there probably are a substantial amount of of gay white people who would say um, we're more comfortable with a black mayor than uh, just a straight white male mayor. 
because he knows something of discrimination and of being in an oppressed uh, minority group. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably also something that is a line of thinking in the city. Yeah. Hmm. See, before I nab some of our other callers, uh, I was looking some of the different reports that you have on uh, Mayor Adams, uh, his tenure in office, uh, the anti-crime uh, group as well. Uh, and I mm. looked back last time there was a black mayor in New York. You were not there yet. Mayor David Dinkins. Uh, he has yeah. an autobiography, a mayor's life. I had just said, like we have our book club, like whew, if there was an audio book, this is what we would be reading next. There isn't. And it's kind of long and I'm definitely not reading it, but wow, it is fascinating <laughs> reading more important than watching television. I just, I'll read one little tidbit and then get your thought. I guess people can kind of have this in mind. We talk about mayor Eric Adams when you were saying he came to office moderate. I'm not here to shake things up and, you know, defund the police and all that. That's not me. This is uh, former mayor David Dinkins, first black mayor of New York City. In his autobiography, A Mayor's Life, uh, he writes, this is, uh, let's see if I can give you all the chapter. This is uh, chapter 14, Race Against Rudy. Two black Brooklyn city council representatives were abused during the riot. Una Clark, a petite woman, was forcibly stopped by a beer-drinking off-duty officer in uniform but without a badge while trying to cross Broadway. I showed him my credentials, she told Newsday, and he said, I'm going to curse here just because I don't like sanitizing things about racism, white supremacy, so you'll have to forgive my potty mouth, but no sanitizing. In quotes, I don't care who the fuck you are. You are not going across the street. The officer said to his sidekick, this nigger says she's a member of the city council. Another black Brooklyn city council woman, Mary Pinkett, was frightened when her car stuck on the Brooklyn Bridge because of the riot was rocked and shaken by off-duty cops. Channel 2 cameraman John Haygood had the word nigger shouted at him by demonstrators. One officer who asked not to be identified told Newsday Dinkins is just afraid we're going to go on a rampage shooting all of his black people. That shows how much respect he has for cops. Chief of Patrol David Scott, a black man and the highest ranking uniform officer in the department, was booed when he urged the crowd to stop mobbing the steps of City Hall. The Times reported that some on-duty officers encouraged the protesters. The demonstration, really more of a brawl or riot, lasted two hours and a half. Newsday columnist Jimmy Breslin reported... The cops held up several of the most crude drawings of Dinkins, black, performing perverted sex acts. A sign said, Dinkins, we know your true color, yellow-bellied. And then here was one of them calling across the top of his beer can held to his mouth, 
How do you like the niggers beating you up in Crown Heights? Important reference. Now others began screaming, Crown Heights. How was that? Now you got a nigger inside City Hall. How do you like that? A nigger mayor. And they put it right out in the sun yesterday at City Hall. We have a police force that is openly racist. Reading, more important than watching television, the first black mayor of New York, David Dinkins. Now this is kind of old, but this is not quite ancient history. This is like 1989, so I'm sure. Mayor Eric Adams was around and hanging out then. I'm sure he remembers all this. Uh, let me hear it again. Well, let me one. Let me get your thoughts on this. And she were not quite a New Yorker when all this happened. Well, actually, is that is that riot that's being described there? I'm pretty sure he's talking about the riot in response to him trying to create the Civilian Complaint Review Board. Yes. Yes, that because, is. Yeah. Yeah, which is like really, it's so interesting to think about that because, and it shows you how things change, but things stay the same, right? Like Dinkins was the one who who put into place this modern civilian review board, which prior to that had been pretty much housed inside the police department and broke it out as an independent agency. And police, I mean that that uh, passage you just read describes it better than I ever could. It, it was a, an absolute riot. I, I've heard that a lot of the officers were drunk and were openly drinking alcohol, that people were worried that there would be uh, violence, that cops would pull their guns and just start shooting people. I mean, just an, an insane scene. And it's all because Dinkins tried to put into place really just a small measure of accountability uh, over the NYPD, and this was how they reacted with this horrible uh, racist bile. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and that that was the creation of the modern day CCRB, right? And the cops still to this day hate the CCRB. The cops still to this day, there's a huge racism problem within the NYPD. And still to this day, if you try to, if mayors try to, and this is why, what I think Eric Adams will eventually run up against. If he really tries to put into place any kind of substantive oversight of the NYPD, um, he's going to run into these same racist white cops who will attack him in the most vile, racist terminology possible. Uh, and it really is like they feel that they are a city unto themselves, that they cannot be governed by any external force that is how the nypd sees itself and uh i mean we'll see how adams deals with that and we'll see if the response to that is this same kind of of uh racial fear-mongering that happened during the dinkins administration i i actually met you know i met dinkins once and he was like the most charming lovely man you could ever meet like he was just a really really nice guy and um yeah, I mean to think that that of that kind of, of that riot, that violent, drunken, white 
NYPD riot. I mean, it's so disturbing to think about. Uh, well, let me pause right there. Are you aware of any sort of incident like this attacking uh, individuals just on the basis of them being gay, like officers being out drunk and just looking for LGBTQ members to do this sort of thing to and being on camera, no less? No, not an incident like this. No. Uh, as I said, this is not quite ancient history, so I'm sure uh, probably even some of our listeners, Thomas in New York and folks who there, I'm sure they remember this like vividly. Imagine, I remember how they responded to uh, Mayor de Blasio, Cowbell, uh, a white man talking about changing force and, and when they had those officers shot in 2014 and they said he had blood on his hands and turned his back on him at the steps like oh my gosh no, this, this is a white man I could I can't you just heard a black male coming in in this environment talking about defund the police black lives are you serious and this is not just the police behaving as their own entity this is the go back to that James Lowen code, uh, quote this is applauded and expected and I would submit there's no way this would be tolerated officers out drunk in public brawling unless they're targeting black people I cannot imagine any environment this would be tolerated them yelling at any group of white people for any reason yeah I think you're right about that yeah uh, let's see. Make sure I don't miss the callers. Do, 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 retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Mr. Tufel? Oops, hit the wrong line. My bad. Finger slipped. Sorry about that. Try that again. Greetings. Greetings, retired firefighter. I I don't have a uh, New York question, but I I think I heard the guest mentioned that uh he has some experience some legal experience in family family law am i correct sir yeah that's that's my primary that's mostly what i do yeah oh okay uh under uh white supremacy uh as a result thereof there's been a lot of abandoned mistreated non-white children, especially the non-white children who are racially classified as black, uh, uh, either directly or indirectly due to the system of racist white supremacy. Under such a system, do you think it would be correct for white people to make decisions for these victims of racism white supremacy? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I agree with... Uh with the premise of your question, which here in New York, at least we can see that there is a lot of abuse of, um, by ACS, by our administration of children's services, which can ha is, you know, has the legal power to take a child away from a parent. And there have been some horror stories of parents who have had their children taken away and, you know, primarily this is we're talking about black parents and black children who have had their children taken away from them for really stupid, dubious reasons that no parent should see their 
child taken away from them. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you, you, in family law, you can absolutely see, uh, the, uh, white supremacy at work in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of whether I think white officials should make decisions, um, regarding these families, I mean, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. My, my own politics is pretty anti-statist. I'm not sure any officials should be exercising this kind of power, um, over families and making these sorts of decisions. Um, I do think that probably that there are white administrators and white people in positions of power who are perhaps not willing or not able to understand the black experience, who, who treat black people uh, as uh, less like or just see them as less able parents or something like that, uh, which is completely an example of white supremacy and maybe more willing to uh, disrupt families, right? Um, and I think that's a big problem that we have here. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I've heard horror stories all across the country, so this is not just a New York thing. Yes, sir. Uh, well, you, you brought up the term official, uh, which probably is which more than likely is relevant uh, because I think it uh, is juxtaposed if, if uh lateral with power but i'm also speaking mm -hmm. about the situation of black uh, white adults who end up having these children who are making decisions oh, sexual decisions for these children uh there's even was a case where uh this uh white couple uh decided to commit suicide and took the children with them in their yep. endeavors of killing themselves uh, I, I listened to that podcast. Yeah. Oh man, ho what a horrible story. Yeah, definitely. And there's there's tons of other uh, situations going on. It's, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, uh, when a, uh, a a a dog is abandoned. As a dog is uh, the puppies are abandoned, and people just start picking up the, the puppies and and doing whatever they want to do with the puppies. Uh, uh, that's, that's the, the ugly, the, the ugly picture that I envision, uh, when it comes to, uh, a system of racist white supremacy and what happens to non-white people, especially non-white people who are racially classified as black. Does that make sense to you, sir? It does. Yeah. It, it, you know, I don't have a huge amount of experience in this area of, of, I mean, essentially what you're talking about is the process by which black children are taken or quote unquote given away, but pressured to be given away from their black parents and, and kind of scooped up by white people. Right. Um, I don't yeah. really have a huge amount of personal experience, but with that process, the foster system adoption and all that, but I've read enough to know that, yes, what you're talking about is a huge problem and a real issue that we have. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Of course. Mm, much obliged. Retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, I think 
nabbed all of our callers. So uh, before we let Mr. Tufo go, make sure you don't wait till the very last moment if you have something else. Oh, a caller in New Jersey. I guess yeah. you had some. I yeah, already I saw you. I saw you. Uh, before uh, before I get his question, uh, just quick for the listeners, they were talking about the case in Oregon. That's the Hart family murders where they drove off the cliff. I think they have a podcast and a documentary and probably a book and a whole lot of other info if you want more details. Throwaway children, Dr. Welsing would say. Uh, speaking of children, uh, the case with Cameron Williams, the 16-year-old in New York, uh, I guess there was some sort of scuffle or what have you with an officer. The gun was fired. Uh, the teen says, hey, I shot myself when he grabbed me, had my hands in my pockets, gun went off, shot myself in the thigh, and the bullet passed through me and hit the uh, officer's foot. Uh, in this case, has been picked up. Folks have, have kind of used it to argue their points either way. Some, including uh, Mayor Eric Adams, uh, you tweeted about this case. I was saying, hey, this is another example. This teen is a menace. He shouldn't have been released uh, on bail to begin with. One, where lots of folks have talked about bail reform and saying this is absurd. We need to put these criminals, keep them caged. Uh, kind of going back to what we were talking about, about who this is going to have an impact on. And Cameron Williams is a black male, 16-year-old. And... I believe the mayor was talking about saying, hey, these folks need to be charged as adults. And I kind of cringed like, oh, my God, that's another one. Like, ooh, Central Park Five and like, like snatching lots of young black boys and saying, yeah, you're a super predator. You need to be charged and caged as an adult. Uh, do you have uh, thoughts on this Cameron Williams uh, case and how politicized it's been? Yeah, I, I yes, I, I'm so glad you brought it up. It's a big topic of discussion in New York right now. And, um, you know, first of all, God only knows what these officers initially walked up to this kid for. Really, God only knows. I mean, when I was at CCRB, furtive movements, that was always the phrase you would use somebody looking the wrong way, somebody being in the wrong quote-unquote neighborhood, something like that, would be enough for officers to go up to some random person and stop and frisk them, search them, hassle them in some way. So God only knows what even made this officer go up to this kid in the first place, right? I'm not defending anyone for carrying an illegal gun. But another issue that we have to talk about is how white people are able to get gun licenses in New York City because they're willing to hire lawyers or they're connected and they know people in power and they can carry guns legally. But black people who don't have those same institutional bases of power for the most part spend a few thousand dollars getting a gun license so this this is another example of a law that's used against black people and used to uh, criminalize their behavior that's not used against white people. And, you know, the idea that Adams would then come out and say, oh, this 16-year-old kid who didn't shoot this cop, this the, the cop tackled him. And again, I say for God knows what reason, the cop tackled this kid. So already the cops using force against this kid and this gun accidentally went off. And again, I'm not defending someone for carrying a gun, but what did this kid really do wrong here? Right. He didn't intend to shoot this cop. So to say, oh, lock this guy away. I mean, 
Everyone in New York remembers the story of Khalif Browder, who was in Rikers for years and who eventually committed suicide, and he was just a young kid for allegedly stealing a backpack. I mean, have we have we really forgotten about that so quickly that people can can feel so brazen to say lock these kids up? I mean, Rikers Island is a nightmare. You could be condemning this child to death if you send him to Rikers for an extended period of time. So I really thought that what Mayor Adams did there, demagoguing on this case, I really thought it was shameful, honestly. And I thought he was being intellectually dishonest in claiming that this had to do with bail reform when it didn't have anything to do with bail reform, um, that this kid had posted a $250,000 bond. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, I feel bad for the kid, to be honest with you. And I, I'm, I'm glad he is not in Rikers right now. And uh, I think Mayor Adams is just using this to score political points. That's how I feel about it. Lots of political points scored, fear-mongering, the uh, no-count, dangerous black male, even at 16 years mm-hmm. old, uh, victim in New Jersey? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, yes. So, Gus asked a question, and you said that uh, in relation to um, the fear that uh, Mayor Adams may show favor to black people, and you said that conservatives may have these fears. So do you think that conservatism and racism is synonymous? No, I absolutely don't think that. I think racism okay. is a phenomenon that, that you know, goes through all political ideologies and, and all, you know, individual lines of thought. So no, I don't think they're synonymous. Okay, because I said that to say this, because earlier we talked about the New York Post. Did the New York Post, which is a conservative newspaper affiliate of uh, Fox News, did they endorse or overtly um, not endorse Eric Adams? They endorsed him in the primary. I don't. Uh, it's a really good question whether they endorsed him in the general election or whether they endorsed Curtis Sliwa. I can tell you that they have generally taken a pro Adams editorial line. Um, but then it's, a, then it's a conservative paper. Right. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah, uh, which like, is a, it's a weird thing, right? It's like kind of an interesting dynamic. But yes, yeah, totally. Okay. And the police unions. No, you heard nothing out of the police unions who was grandstanding, to use a metaphor, uh, the whole um, during the times of the uh, rights of, of George Floyd, the George Floyd uh situation did, did they have any objections and, and they will be considered conservative as well yeah i mean they're like fascists they're as basically as conservative as it gets but no they they have also um they've held their fire on eric Adams. you 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 will not find like patrick lynch for example who's the head of the um the police officers union um you will not find him speaking negatively about Eric Adams. Okay. So if, so if we were, let's just say we were to say that conservative conservatism and racism is synonymous. The most powerful is racist in the city endorse Eric Adams. If that was the case, well, that was true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, 
I, I, I think that there is a there are different kind of like manifestations of racism, right? Like there are some, and when I say conservative, I guess what I mean is is like the type of white person who is racism is so ingrained in him that or racism is so I don't even know how to put it is manifest in him such that you know he he thinks every black person should be murdered in the street or something like that right and that's not every conservative there are conservatives like Patrick Lynch like the new, the editorial staff of the New York Post who I'm assuming are all or mostly white people um who if a black person kind of toes their line that they are that they are willing to give that black person at least a limited pass. I mean, Gus kind of brought up something interesting earlier um, that I think he's right about, which, you know, this could all fall apart at any second. I mean, if Eric Adams, he comes out and he says, oh, you know, I'm going to hold the police accountable. Well, if he ever actually tries to do this, you could see this all fall apart really quickly. This little alliance that Adams has with the with the right wing in New York City. Um but as of right now, yeah, I mean, you, you caller, you're a hundred percent right. Like, the, right now, he is in an alliance with with some of the most conservative members of our city. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Gus, um, if if I can say, and I close, and um, just basically, like I said, I deliver in New York City, and I came to the conclusion that Eric Adams was when, but when I worked for a food company, and we were delivering pallets. Of food to different um, nonprofit organizations around New York City on behalf of Eric Adams. So you will hear no complaining from me or name calling of Eric Adams. White people are behind behind it all. We're going as it relates to Eric Adams. Period. I close. Much obliged. Uh, before we allow you to uh, enjoy the rest of your evening, Mr. Tufel. Uh One, do you know uh, William Boskett, if I'm saying it correctly? Is that name familiar? No, I don't think so, but maybe I'm just blanking. Willie Boskett. Okay. Uh, he changed it. Uh, he would be like the Cameron Williams from like, well, maybe not that bad. Yeah, maybe that's an incorrect. I talk about metaphors all the time. Totally incorrect metaphor. But he was a 15 year old uh, black male uh, who shot and killed someone, a stranger on the subway. And because of his conduct, they changed all kinds of laws and allowed juveniles to be punished as adults and be really punitive and all of that. This happened like 40 years ago, even way before the Mayor Dinkins thing. Uh, it just it reminded me when we were talking about all this with changing the laws for juveniles. Like, didn't we do this before in New York City? Like the whole Willie, like this is an infamous yeah. case with child law. And even a lot of people look back on this now like, oh, this is really terrible. We should have undone this and ended up changing laws all across the country for being really punitive with black boys pattern. Uh, yeah. But much obliged. Uh, and then the other question, uh, you identify white man. Uh, gay white man it is often black people major subject of criticism saying that black people are the biggest homophobes in the universe and just cause all kinds of problems for gay people have you had problems 
with black people specifically causing you problems or mistreating you or anything specifically because you are gay? No, I think that's a, um, yeah. I mean, are there people who still believe that, that homophobia is more in the black community than in the white community? It just seems like such an outdated thing to me. Um, I mean, look, have black people called me a faggot before? Yeah, but far, far more white people have than black people. Um, and, you know, it's not black people who are sending, you know, gay gay kids to conversion camps or who are running, you know, the right-wing churches in America that preach that homosexuality is a sin. I mean, those are white people, right? So I think that's really outdated. Um, I don't think it was ever accurate. And, uh, yeah, I think it's just flat-out wrong. I wish it was outdated, but I still hear it very often. Yeah. Uh, It's a shame. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about it, sir. Uh, We have been chatting it up with uh, John Tufel about racism, white supremacy, NYC. Uh, As I said, we have lots of New York City listeners, so hopefully we'll get to chat it up again. Maybe we'll check in again after uh, Mayor Adams has had some time in office and kind of see how things look uh, with some time, how things have evolved. Is he kind of staying the course or is it more difficult? We'll, uh, yeah, maybe we can check in and do that down the road. But thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Monday evening with us, a bit of your insight. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Hope listeners did as well. Uh, keep up the writing. Uh, we would be paying attention and following your great work, Mr. Tufel. Thank you so much, Gus. This was great. And thank you so much for inviting me. I really had a great time and yeah. Enjoy the rest of your Monday evening as well. Thank you kindly. Be well, stay warm. John Tufel, uh, cows listeners. Thank you and enjoy your evening, sir. You too. Bye. Evening. Context of white supremacy. Mr. John Tufel, again, one of our uh, investors, shared his report about getting information, reports on police misconduct uh, in the NYC area specifically. He wasn't even in the NYC area. So, anywho, uh, before uh, we get check in, folks have any thoughts they'd like to share, what they thought. So, I mentioned Willie Boskett. Uh, I know this case, B O S K E T, even though I forgot his name briefly because of the book club we read Gavin DeBecker The Gift of Fear he mentions this case in talking about children and violence when children commit violence specifically this case black male they used it to let me hush I'll be quiet this is uh, from NPR they're talking specifically uh, about the uh, Willie Boskett if I'm saying it right well, I'll hush so that we can hear it, and then I'll figure out if I'm actually saying the name correctly. Is it Bosket uh, or Bosket or whatever the case is? We'll hear it. This is from uh, NPR a few years back. Again, this is almost like ancient history in New York from like 1970s, uh, I believe. So like 50 years ago, context of white supremacy. We'll hear the report. We write back. Uh, Folks have thoughts to share. 40 years ago today in New York City, a 15-year-old boy shot and killed a stranger on the subway. Over the next two weeks, Willie Boskett went on a crime spree. He murdered a second man, shot another, and eventually the police caught Boskett. Robert Silbering prosecuted the case. In all my experience, I think that there were certain cases where for the protection of society, an individual has to be warehoused. 
I thought he was one of those. But he wasn't locked up for life. He got the maximum sentence for a juvenile at the time, five and a half years. Kari Pitkin of member station WNYC reports on the life of Willie Boskett, who practically grew up in the juvenile justice system and whose crimes served as the catalyst for its transformation. Willie Boskett was raised in Harlem in the 1960s and 70s. We are standing on the corner of 114th Street and Lenox Avenue. I walked with Willie's childhood friend to the block they grew up on. She didn't want to use her name to protect her privacy. So what floor was uh, Willie's family on? Right there on the first floor, with this um, air conditioner in, right here in this building. And my building was on this side. Oh, man, this just brings back so many memories. We are the corporates, the mighty corporates. The corporates. That was the name of her girl gang on 114th Street. The mighty corporates are ready to fight. She says the kids on the block had a lot of fun playing double dutch and tag. Hot peas and butter, come and get your supper. But they also saw people murdered, running inside when they heard gunshots. Between 1960 and 1978, arrest rates for violent juvenile crime had tripled in New York City. We actually dodged bullets. Willie stood out from all the other kids they grew up with. For one, he was smarter than most. Spending any time with him at all, you knew that he was brilliant. Fox Butterfield wrote the book, All God's Children, about Willie Boskett and his family. I don't know how many people said to me, people who had worked with him, social workers, psychiatrists, had remarked at the time when they were working with Willie, he could grow up and become president. The second reason Willie stood out, he was prone to extreme violence. By the time he was nine, he had lit a homeless man on fire, thrown a typewriter out the window at school, and attacked his sister after she tattled on him in front of their friend. He was like, I'm going to shut her mouth once and for all. And he ran in the kitchen and got the long cooking utensil. And he stuck the fork down her throat. Willie's mom didn't know how to control him, so eventually she brought him to family court to ask for help. He wound up being sent away to a reform school, and over the next four years, Willie bounced in and out of institutions, causing mayhem everywhere. Until finally, at 14, he landed in Brookwood, a secure detention center for boys. There was no real therapy there, aside from some group sessions. You know how I used to feel? I didn't care about nothing. That's actually Willie's voice. This is from Alan and Susan Raymond's documentary film, Bad Boys. Being a staff one day, all the money coming in, so that's why I'm going to follow them and be like them. That's why I don't care. Willie, the thing is this. And the staff didn't have a lot of training. But still, in New York in the mid-1970s, the state was reforming the system. And Brookwood's director was committed to that trying to get kids back into the community, doing away with the more punitive approaches. They were also trying something new with Willie, giving him some privileges. I'd be on my own. If I feel like uh, the grass across the road need to be cut, I don't have to tell nobody where I'm going. I just go cut the grass. I was over there today riding lawnmower. I didn't tell nobody where I was going. You know, I feel free. Even though I'm locked up, I feel free. Do you think this time you're going to stay out for good? Yeah. Uh, how long do you have to stay here before you can go home? Well, I spoke to get release money. Oh, soon. Right. Is that uh, for good? You're going to go home? Yeah. yeah. Soon after that interview, the Raymonds were filming in a hallway. 
and Willie ran at them, screaming, don't do that. And he smashed the camera in Alan's face, giving him a black eye. Willie was released in September 1977, unchanged, perhaps even more violent. And just six months later, Willie and his cousin, Herman Spates, spent 10 days riding the trains, robbing people and spreading violence. Willie murdered two men. Because of the laws at the time, he was tried in family court and could only be sentenced to a maximum of five and a half years. The governor, Hugh Carey, called on the state legislature to change the juvenile justice laws in New York. This case has me outraged. As far as sentencing is concerned, as a practical matter, if this person is mentally unfit to be in society, the person will stay within secure lockup for life. Kerry got his law, so kids as young as 13 can be tried in adult criminal court if they commit murder. But Willie was not affected by the Juvenile Offender Act. He got out at 21 and soon after was rearrested on an attempted armed robbery charge. Once back inside prison, Willie was more incorrigible than ever. He lit fires and stabbed a guard, getting an additional sentence of 25 years to life. Almost no one visits Willie in prison now, but they used to. We get up at 5, 4 in the morning, get to the bus station around 6. We'd arrive about 7.30. It's like an hour and a half, two hours away. This is his niece, Danielle. When she was a kid, she used to go visit Willie with his mom, who also raised her. And then he would come out of that his room, which was locked, and then into the special cell they built for him visiting. And it was like a plexiglass with holes in it. But even the holes didn't match up so he could hear, but he could never be able to stick anything through the glass if he wanted to. You heard that right. The Department of Correction built a plexiglass cell just for Willie. Through the plexiglass, Willie taught Danielle to read and write and the names of the 206 bones in the human body. He was like my dad. He tried, like, and it's unfair because it's a life, like, gone. And I'm not saying, you know, he didn't do bad things. It's just that, unfortunately, the system failed him. I asked Danielle what she thought about the law created after the murders. I think that changing the laws is somewhat necessary because there are children that are incorrigible. You have to kind of wonder what kind of human being, as a child, can stomach a murder. I can stomach to watch it on TV and it's fake. So something is wrong. Society has gotten so hard that when we see that, it's like, oh, this person is terrible. We judge them. We don't say something is wrong. What do we do to fix it? Willie isn't in that specially designed plexiglass cell anymore, but he remains in solitary confinement, where he's been for the past 29 years. Since the Juvenile Offender Act of 1978 was passed in the wake of Willie's sentencing, states across the country adopted similar legislation. And now some 100,000 kids a year under the age of 18 are tried in adult criminal court. For NPR News, I'm Kari Pitkin. It is reported online that Willie Boskett is nicknamed the baby-faced butcher, self-proclaimed monster. They named 
the law that allowed children as young as 13 to be punished as adults in New York, the Willie Bosket law. Again, I know this because of the book club, Gavin DeBecker, The Gift of Fear, 2019, I think, autumn 2019. He talks about OJ. Everything is six degrees of OJ Simpson, but be that as it may, Willie Bosket, New York has a long tradition. Grab a black boy and oh my gosh, what are we going to do? They're running crazy. Willie Bosket is going to kill us all. Central Park Five are going to kill us all. Cameron Williams is going to kill us all. Khalif Browder, yes. Forgotten already. Hadn't even been 10 years. Forgotten already. Man, I totally, totally, totally forgot the book on Willie Bosket. Uh, or one, I'm sure they'll probably, uh, at this point, like many, many 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 uh but the book uh, or one of the books uh all god's children the basket family and the american tradition of violence we were supposed to read that in the book club like way back um if there's an audio book we'd be reading it now maybe there is uh, about fox butterfield all God's Children, Fox Butterfield. Uh, if there's an audio book, that might be the next read because we were supposed to read that a long time ago too. I was pretty much decided like, let's read The Man in the High Castle. It's fiction, but I think a lot of people saw the TV show. Dr. Welsing talked about that book at her final Welsing Institute. In fact, the last time that I spoke to Dr. Welsing, we talked about that show. We were supposed to read it a long time ago. That was what I was thinking. But man, we were supposed to read this book a long time ago as well. All God's Children, Fox Butterfield. If there's an audio book, if anybody can locate it, if we can have it, if I have it in hand by Thursday. That's what we should read, man. Again, they nickname, nickname a 15-year-old black boy the baby-faced butcher. Now, monsters and monstrosities is accurate, but I mean, keep all that. That's one of the first things that I thought about all this conversation about uh, Cameron Williams. That's why I made sure we got that in before he departed. Like, man, they have a long tradition in New York of vilifying black boys. Uh, any thoughts, observations, folks want to share what they heard from Mr. John Tufel uh, and or Willie Bosket. Nothing stood out. Nothing stood out. Grant, I will share one we will be here tomorrow, uh, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll have Sarah Donahy. I think that's how you say her name. Sarah Donahy. She is not. I guess I have to do it correctly. Let's see. Uh, 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 all right. Non-white female 
with a white parent and she talks about this uh within her performance uh in turn where she does like acting comedy writing uh so she talks about this she writes about this she was brought to my attention because she wrote a piece about she's very pale if you uh google her i posted some of the pieces that she has written but they don't have like a picture of her so you'll still have to do like some sort of search so you can see what she looks like but she's very pale pale enough that she could be accepted as white I'll make sure to ask her tomorrow but I think she says that in some of her writing that this is true she could be accepted as white she says <clears throat> she'll be out in public sometimes at events where she is the only white person present invariably a white person will begin a racist joke sometimes they'll you know get to punchline and all the laughter and everything and she says that she will announce the fact that she is non-white that she has a black parent and she says the responses are amazing where people you'll see like it'll take a while for them to process and then they'll just be like oh oh I'm so sorry oh I didn't know I thought you I just assumed you were like Greek or Mediterranean see they'll they'll say something where they have already noted oh you have a little bit more melanin I think you're still white though or you're pale enough that you should be cool with us, you know, having a few disparaging words to say about the Negroes. This shouldn't bother you. I'm so anxious to hear some of the jokes. She writes about some of the racist jokes that they share with her. Uh, but I'm so anxious to hear. I'm so anxious to hear about if her mom talked about racism uh, growing up, her white mother. I think she has a white British mother and she grew up in West Virginia Randy Moss uh, so we'll hear uh, about her experience um, yeah if she is able to be accepted as white all of that tomorrow 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific Sarah Donahue uh, in fact if you're on YouTube she has a channel uh, where she talks about being so-called biracial we'll ask what that means Anywho, uh, as for our guest for today, Mr. Tufo, uh got to use the buckets of words a couple of times. Talking to someone from the legal profession, they understand the importance of words. Especially, I'd even say, not answering questions. Sometimes that is a legal tactic to not answer a question. Incidentally, uh, I'm not a big, uh, I'm not interested at all in the like police reform. I think I've said that throughout my tenure uh, here at the cows, like in no way, shape, form uh, in terms of like, oh, let's change the police and get the like. As long as we're in a system of white supremacy racism, it's exactly what James Lowen wrote. White people applaud and expect racist conduct from enforcement officers. 
period. None of that is going to change as long as we have a system of white supremacy. I've seen no evidence to the contrary. I think that's why Mr. Fuller recommends no fighting, no fussing, no fleeing. That would minimize uh, the uh, Mr. Williams type. Make sure I get his full name. 16. I thought it was in the uh, paper, the New York Times. They called him Mr. Williams. His name is Cameron Williams, who's a 16-year-old, where this gun incident happened. But they called him Mr. Williams. Still a child. Minor, as they say. Anyway, uh, but yeah, I don't think any of these situations will change as long as there's a system of white supremacy racism. This is what enforcement officers are supposed to do. Nigger knockers. Uh, and I, I also I think if if Mr. Tufel, much like many of these other white people, if he were speaking on a different platform, he would have sounded a lot different. Like I think for most non-white people, just having a white person come and talk about reforming against police and having white people come out in March. I can't believe he even said that like, Oh, that's your evidence of white people being sincere about changing the police is that they went out and marched some of them when they weren't mocking Eric Garner. Remember that, uh, from 2014. So after he had been choked to death on camera, it was like a tacky, uh, like, what do we call it? I, not a meme, but that was like a, the tacky challenge of the summer. The Eric, I mean, the Eric Garner challenge where they would go. They had like different white people. They would go and like photobomb uh, news reporters and pretend to be choking someone out behind them and just laugh and giggle like this is the funniest thing. Like people were still protesting in the street about this at the time. Anyway, but I think for many victims we're so terrorized and confused that just having someone classified as white come and talk to us about doing this to change the police or protesting the police, that sort of thing is enough. Oh my God, this guy is great. And he's showing us how to get these reports, which I do see a value to that, but I mean, ugh. come on. And then all the conflation class and the underclass and male supremacy like you know all the information that you know someone in the legal profession and what they do to the Willie Boskets Cameron Williams of the known universe and you say male supremacy like you're a lawyer you know the detail enough to white male supremacy at least I think most victims none of that would have stood out though but at any rate uh, that's that's why it's white guests only, even though tomorrow victim of racism, but racist jokes. That's the whole reason that I was interested. Any people know that's one of my subjects that I adore. I think it reveals so much those racist jokes, but yeah, that will be tomorrow. Non-white guest, but in general, white guests only, uh, folks satisfied, nothing they need to share. grand uh hope it was worthy of your monday evening uh we will do it again tomorrow same time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh listener supported counter racist radio hit the blog racism hyphen notes 
dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com PayPal button is in the top right corner uh, just beneath that is the link for PayPal Venmo cash app uh, cash app the address cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows much obliged for the folks who've invested kept us on the air for 13 years if we make it another three weeks hope we've been worthy of your time and energy uh, sobriety would be best you heard the police officers were drunk and terroristic black mayor in New York so you want to make sure that you are thinking correctly so that you can avoid that as best you can in addition to being sober, if you're out and about, this is no time for verbal confrontations with strangers. You should be thinking this person, male or female, could be armed, could be off-duty enforcement officer. You don't know. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. They might have an armed entourage at the ready. You're by your lonely. If you're in a vehicle, you are not on the cell phone. You are sober, <clears throat> buckled up. There we go. Uh, doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with enforcement officers, badge or no. And we need all of our attention. Dangerous times. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time no name calling no gossiping small things that we can do to solve this problem cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim your brother problem. you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>